0: Welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our weekly look, at least weekly look, at the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And Good morning, community, as we move into the kind of Advent period um, ahead of Christmas. Uh, Sarah and I are going out for dinner and doing some shopping tonight, but ahead of all that, she's home today, which is great, while I work with the cats. And uh, I'm here to talk about a fantastically interesting article, words you don't say often, in the Washington Post, detailing the reasons for the failed counteroffensive of the Ukrainians. And even the Ukrainians have finally come to admit what has been obvious to many of us for a long time, and that is things have ground in Ukraine into a stalemate. Um, analytically, I defy anyone to say they've had a better war than my firm, we called the actual invasion date within two or three days when 85% of our, our, our competitors said there wouldn't be an invasion at all. There you go, Mr. Bremer. Um, and in addition to that, or Mr. on the one hand, on the other hand, Mr. Friedman. Um, so there's that. We then said, well, everyone was cheerleading for the Ukrainians, that the war was going to devolve into a World War I style stalemate. And now everyone accepts that, having forgotten that just a few months ago, they said there was no chance of this happening. Why are our competitors so wrong? Why are Ukraine's cheerleaders so wrong? The basic answer is in the word cheerleader, the greatest single failing in political risk analysis as the community probably knows by now is a thing called wish casting and that's substituting what you want to have happen from what is likely to have happen. And I remember during my my fraught Iraq war days, there were an awful lot of things going on where it looked like colleagues of mine who'd been right down the line about the problems of the war somehow thought that by us opposing it, everyone would see what we saw, and that the war wouldn't take place. And I remember saying to them, the the question is much more ethical. It's much more Thomas More than that man for all seasons. This is going to happen regardless of what we say. We are merely mid-level, promising mid-level people throwing ourselves in front of this machine or going along. We have an existential moral question to answer, but it will not change the outcome of the war. The war will go ahead there will be tens of thousands of American casualties, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi casualties. Iran will be bolstered in the regional balance of power by subverting uh, the Sunni within Iraq. You're going to make there be some sort of radical uh, response, which was ISIS. And all of, this will cost a trillion dollars and we will fail. And I was right on every single point, but I was right on one point more that matters even more. And that point is, this won't change. By wishing away reality, I'm not making it better. Rather, political risk analysts shouldn't be what Ukraine should Um, I think of Phillips O'Brien at my old alma mater, St. Andrews, who gone from being a pretty good military historian to being, being, being a cheerleader of, of modern political events. And always when these guys try to do one extra thing, Timothy Snyder, the historian who's now a Ukrainian cheerleader, when they give up their analytical hat, and put their heart forward and not their head. They make mistake after mistake after mistake, and that's because they're wishing for a world and an outcome rather than analyzing what happens. And I think the, the strength of what the firm does is it gives our clients, our business clients, banks, hedge funds, uh, consulting firms, all multinational, uh, some of the biggest blue-chip companies in the world, but also governments we work with, we give them the truth. We don't wish cast. We don't wish away the world. Rather, we follow the Burkean moral imperative to see the world as it is, warts and all, and then try to make it better. But you've got to see it as it is, or you're merely feeling good and not doing good. And that's why Phillips O'Brien is wrong time after time after time. Again, no shame. Uh, Much like Robert Kagan, he wants a world where everyone wants to live in democracy imposed on them at the point of a gun. Uh, But if he fails, he's never troubled by any self-doubt because they say their heart's in the right place. This is the essence of neoconservative and Wilsonian utopian thinking, whereas we are grounded in realist Burkean thinking about a world that actually is. We say to be moral, you have to do good and not feel good. And this wish casting is why the cheerleaders were wrong time and time and again. They're seduced by the rightness of the Ukrainian cause, though I'd say there are real limits to that. Ukraine was not some perfect, I went there many times, was not some perfect democracy, some capitalist state. Rather, it was a really corrupt oligarchy that I hated going to. Its people were great, fairly well educated with every resource in the world, and yet it failed because it was a corrupt oligarchy, neither capitalistic nor purely democratic, and we're seeing that come out again. But they bought into this romantic vision that the Ukrainians were pure good, the Russians were pure pure evil, and when you live in the land of fairy tales, you're apt to make mistakes rooting for Little Red Riding Hood and not the wolf. And the Washington Post, which has been part of this cheerleading crowd, standard Wilsonian nonsense, at least had the good sense to go through in detail a rather remarkable piece, I commend it to you today, about in detail, they did 30 or 40 interviews with senior-level officials in both Ukraine, Europe, and the United States, pointing out why did the counteroffensive go wrong. Now, we've mentioned all these things in passing, before, but I thought it would be very, very helpful if we put them all together uh, because the post challenged me to look at what we said because it gives some micro dots for our macro analysis and at least four things went wrong with the ukraine counteroffensive of this year of which so much was expected if in the initial stages of the uh, 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 ukraine miraculously and it was miraculous dodged the bullet of being said remember 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 remember, remember that putin had his his officers put their dress uniforms in their in their cases because he thought he'd take over at least up to kiev in merely three weeks and so it was a miracle that the ukrainians uh sort of dodged that bullet and then they had a rather good uh, period of time where they retook Kyrson, uh and land around Kharkiv. And that all looked good to the south and to the east. And so there was a, everything was expected that one more push might knock the Russians back on their heels. And so there was an awful lot expected without really seeing what went on. at exactly this key political risk moment, the cheerleaders, the Phillips O'Briens of the world, the Robert Kagan's of the world, the Ann Apple bombs of the world. We should name people when we're right or wrong. In Republican government, we should be held accountable far more than we are. So I'm going to name names. Again, when we're wrong, I'll say so. Uh, but we're right 85% of the time. They're right 50. The difference is wish casting. We actually look at the world as it exists and give reliable analysis back rather than wishing for a world that will never be. Gigantic difference and we said at this critical time no we think a stalemate is more likely and we were told we were being defeatist and not being you know supporters of ukraine and that's correct i'm not a supporter of ukraine i'm a supporter of american national interests very 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 quickly that's what i'm a supporter of and that's the thing that matters and so i have a very different touchstone i don't work for the ukrainians or use the united states as neoconservatives do as a vehicle to impose democracy on other people, uh, I care about American interests, the American people as they are. Very different touchstone. So what are the four things we saw then that the Washington Post highlights in their piece of today? Well, for one thing, the whole of counteroffensive of earlier this year, to be, to, be, to, be, to be spring, but it was actually summer, was way too slow. It's in, in boxing, and the terminology, the analogy works. If your opponent is back on his heels, you don't slow down and jab away at him. You throw hooks. You finish him. You finish him off. You don't give him time to respond. Particularly, a Russia that's bigger than Ukraine, has three to five times more people, has its own military industrial complex, has a defense base. Unlike Ukraine, which is dependent on the kindness of strangers, of outsiders, when they're on their heels, miraculously, you have to finish them. Because if you let them get their balance back and don't knock them out, then some sort of slog and some sort of boxing slog. Think Ali Foreman, uh, think Ali Frazier, actually, the the thrill in Manila is probably a better example, where late in the fight, they're kind of leaning against each other and can barely hold on. That kind of outcome is going to suit the Russians to the ground. Stalemate suits the bigger power, the power with mass, the power with the defense industrial complex. And in this case, that's Russia. So when Russia was on its heels, having lost land around Kharkiv, having lost Kherson, um. This was the moment to finish them off. And instead, the Ukrainians kept postponing the invasion. They let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Their men were 80% trained, as the article said, and they didn't go forward, knowing the Russian forces were in even worse shape. The Ukrainians at the time had about 130,000 casualties. The Russians had 200,000. But the Russians had lost a good number of commandos who were their elite troops and put in a lot of groups who certainly didn't want to be there. Now is the time to finish them off. And because the Ukrainians failed to do this, hesitated, kept moving the deadline back, it went from March to April to May to June, uh, it gave the Russians time to regroup, to catch their breath and regroup, and that the Russians did. So that's point one. Too slow. They hesitated and missed their moment. And it was very clear in reading the dispatches, as deadline after deadline moved back, we at the firm said, a problem. The second thing was the Russians got better. They used this time to get better. Surovikin, General Surovikin, who commanded uh, the Russian forces then, who had made his name fighting particularly ghastly war in Syria, uh, used the time to go over to the defense. No more fantasies about winning. He had them dig the Russians zigzag real trenches, not death coffins but trenches that zigzag, and critically, he put the key armament of the war, mines. The Russians have an almost limitless number of mines, and he put mines back to an area that's almost unfathomable. Miles and miles and miles of mines. So the Ukrainians would have to demine the area in front of them, which meant that this would be a very slow process, so no more lightning strikes. So by digging real trenches, zigzag trenches, That had depth where the Russians could act, conscripts could actually successfully hide from an artillery attack by putting mines down that the Ukrainians would have to go through, and demining takes an awful lot of time. The notion of quick maneuver and surprise, the very features which had led Ukraine to do so well around Kherson and Kharkiv, went away. Surovikin, who has since gotten into trouble for winking at Prigozhin, got this right, and the Russians used this time to dig in. And also the Russians, you know, one has to say, if you read enough Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, the Russian capacity to suffer is almost limitless. And they use this capacity that they could take 200,000 casualties in America. There'd be calls for impeachment. If we had 200,000 casualties for the Russians, this is a day at the beach. This is what they expect, that they can out-suffer and outlast anybody. And with this huge advantage in population that eventually this would tell. So they dug in much more effectively. They put mines everywhere, and they slowed the very qualities that had made the Ukrainians successful up to now. So the Ukrainian attack, first, was too slow. Second, the Russians got better better through Seroviken and the use of their mines. They finally found a competent general. Third, uh, the Ukrainian attack was too dispersed. And the Americans, in the Washington Post article, is very good on this. I mean, when we wargamed this out internally... Um, You could see this, that standard American military doctrine uh, is in line with Napoleon. You concentrate your troops on one fixed area and you break through. And this has been American military doctrine for a long time. Ironically, a lot of this was learned by the American military by the success of the German blitzkrieg in World War II, where this is what Guderian and Manstein did so well. You focus... Uh, and in a movement, a very specific area, you throw all your troops at it and you get a breakthrough in that area. You don't fight all the way along the line. You had an area, Napoleon did this with artillery, Manstein and Guderian did it with tanks. And the United States said to the Ukrainians when they war game this out, you need to focus on one specific area. And they picked, I think correctly, the Americans, the Sea of Azov, because if you could break through and disrupt the land bridge that Russia had. Linking up Russia itself through the Donbas region down to Mariupol, the Sea of Azov, along the land bridge to Crimea. If you could break this at the Sea of Azov, that would stop supply lines getting from Russia to Crimea, and this would be a catastrophe for the Russians. So everything should have been focused on disrupting the land bridge in the south, and instead, the Ukrainians, rather greedily, can't believing their luck that they'd been successful around Kherson and Kharkiv chose to attack all the way along the line dispersing their mass along the line and when you disperse mass along the line it usually leads to a crawl you don't break through anywhere you advance in very small pockets everywhere and that's of course what happened in the in the attack that's precisely what happened they made very minor tactical gains across the board but they didn't break through anywhere because they didn't mass troops as Napoleon Manstein and then the American military called them to do and they absolutely ignored the American military Who then said and this is the stupidity of the Biden approach. Well, it's the Ukrainians war They can do anything they want rubbish if you're paying for the lights if you're paying for the birthday party You get to pick the dance numbers and the United States is paying to keep the lights on in Ukraine They should have told them what to do and they'd have done much better privately But instead the Ukrainians were allowed to follow their feckless path and that didn't work. And then fourth, beyond dispersing too much, um, they were too emotional. That, and the great example is Zelensky. Um, very good at rallying support for Ukraine around the world, less good at actually the military wherewithal. This guy is a comedian by training. He was a failed president until the war happened when he miraculously rallied both his country and the world to his cause. But before that, this guy has no military background whatsoever. He can wear a T-shirt, all he likes, but it doesn't mean he's learned anything about the military. And yet he thinks he knows that. And my example would be, my real world example, empirical example, would be Bakhmut. This little bit of territory in the East that has no value at all has become the Verdun of um. The Ukrainian, uh, the Russia-Ukrainian war, much as Verdun was, w- was the example in World War One of folly. Originally, Verdun in World War One had no value to the French at all, but there were so many casualties on both the German and the French side that it became a church piece, 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 piece. Threw in guy after guy after guy for real no strategic reason. Bakhmut holding had become a symbol of pride around the world to the Ukrainians, even though it has very limited strategic value, or even tactical value. And yet the Ukrainians talked about, for instance, during this dispersal, the Americans said, Well, why are you putting troops around Bakhmut? Which the Ukrainians finally lost. Why, why are you doing this? You should focus on the Sea of Azov. And Zelensky said, No, we have to we have to put troops around to threaten the Russians around Bakhmut because his ego is on the line. We underestimate hubris. I mean, my classics background, you know, stands me in good stead. People are arrogant and overconfident and make mistakes. The operating play of modern political risk is not Macbeth, a series of evil, eminently rational guys pulling strings from behind the scenes. It's not some Oliver Stone movie. Rather, it's Macbeth. It's arrogant guys making errors, assuming they're right and not really knowing what's going on. As Deep Throat said in All the President's Men, that great film, these aren't very bright guys and things got out of hand about Watergate. And that's what happened here, that these aren't very bright or trained guys his ego was involved in Bakhmut, so he dispersed troops to around Bakhmut, where they did absolutely no good. And rather than breaking through around the Sea of Azov, which is, he dispersed and accomplished precious little. And worse, there's been immense reputational damage. So these are the four things that the Post article brings out that at, at the micro level that we have been talking about at the macro level now for, what, nine months at least? Again, part of the key to political risk is timing. Now everybody sees there's a stalemate, but nine months ago, only we saw that there's a stalemate. That's the key. Political risk, like love and dancing, is all about timing. Everything is about timing. And that's and that's what happened here. So the wishcasters of the world, cheerleaders for Ukraine, why did they get things wrong? The post article, and they have been cheerleaders, brings this out. One the advance was too slow, should have been in in spring and not summer. Two, the Russians got better with Syrovikin mines and better trenches. Three, the Ukrainian attack was worse, 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 worse. They should have attacked at one point, as the Americans suggested. And four, Zelensky let his ego get the better of him, caring about Bakhmut rather than breaking through. And now we see the vast reputational damage to Ukraine and the fact that the Americans are keeping the lights on. By the way, a country, I would argue, isn't viable if it's dependent on anyone else to keep going. That's almost the general definition of viability. Ukraine is not viable. It is, it is a mendicant of the West. And that's the danger. How long are we going to stay? This was the Afghanistan problem. This is what leads to forever wars. This is what Robert Kagan, already whining about Donald Trump winning, saying he's going to install some sort of dictatorship, when the reality is what's going to happen is Kagan is going to be nowhere near the rest of his life and good riddance to bad rubbish after the Iraq war, he suffered no reputational damage. Only a society in decline would not have there be reputational damage to Robert Kagan, preeminent cheerleader for the Iraq war, along with Ann Applebaum, David Frum, Max Boot. These guys are John Bolton. These guys are still around without any reputational damage or self-doubt. He's whining about Donald Trump because he can see he's going to win and he's going to be excluded from power forever, worrying about the state of democracy when democracy is working just fine. A member of a failed elite who failed catastrophically in the Iraq war is going to be excluded from power. That strikes me as democracy working. That strikes me as exactly what ought to be happening. And so rather than call, you know, this is the pot calling the kettle black. This is finally there being a corrective to the lunacy of neoconservatism. But while Kagan rants and raves about Trump another of his pet causes, along with Ann Applebaum, who never saw an intervention she didn't think was World War II, and that she didn't think we could win easily as she was cheerleading for the Ukrainians, oh, they're easily gonna win. Why does no one hold these people to account and being wrong time after time after time? I wouldn't hire them to be my intern and get me coffee. The goal is to be right. The goal is not to wish cast or cheerlead. The goal is to look at these real factors and see what's happening, because now Ukraine is a mess. We have Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, former heavyweight champion of the world, rightly saying that Zelensky is showing delusional autocratic tendencies. We have General Valery Zoluzhny, the quite able commander of Ukraine forces, finally stating the obvious, God bless him, and saying the war is a stalemate. Zelensky reprimands him for stating the obvious and then has to admit a week later, well, things didn't go as we want. Understatement of the century. But we have Zeluzhny, who's more popular by far than Zelensky. His his approval rating in Ukraine is about 70%. Zelensky's in the 40s. Um, He's jealous of his popularity. Speaking the truth... And him being offended in hearing that you don't want commanders who are offended and are dependent on any outside power. And you have Klitschko saying that this is a guy who didn't see the invasion coming, which is true. The CIA was warning and the United States was warning uh, Ukraine the Russians were really going to attack. This is a time that American officialdom actually got something right. And he'd ignore them and says, we know the Russians better than you, proving himself inept yet again. Uh, but they're now not going to have presidential elections, most likely in March, because they say that's too difficult with troops at the front. Many people abroad and martial law declared, forgetting that the United States in the middle of a civil war, which claimed 600,000 lives, did have, a, have an election. And in fact, Lincoln was losing that election until, to George McClellan, of all people, until September of 1864, when Sherman finally brought brought Georgia, giving Lincoln the military victory that led to a change in his political fortunes. If you want to, you can have a democratic election, even in a wartime. And the American example proves this. He doesn't want there to be an election. So again, an oligarch, increasingly inept, increasingly besieged, increasingly authoritarian, sound familiar? This is not a horse to bet on particularly with the bigger fish to fry of China and the Roosevelt rule, which does threaten American interests fundamentally out in Asia. But all this was predictable. How do I know it? We predicted it. The Washington Post article is great in that it shows the micro dots of our macro analysis, which is confirmed point after point after point. So the next question, because political risk is like method acting, you want to get better all the time. We're at 80%. In terms of our risk call rate, they're at the monkey score of 50%, but you can get better from being right, and you can get better from being wrong if you're open to it. What did we get right here? We didn't wish cast. We followed the ball where it took us. We saw these macro factors and saw what was coming. What did they get wrong? The Phillips O'Briens of the world will never admit it, of course. The one thing they're unt- they're very good at scrambling to cover their backsides Uh failed political risk analysts, and they're very good at not being troubled by analytical realities or self-doubt. What did they get wrong? Wish casting. They wished for a result rather than seeing the facts on the ground. But the only way to make the world better, as Burke said, is to see it as it is and then try to improve it from there. And I promise you, community, we will always, right or wrong, keep trying to do that. Thanks very much. Great to do this uh, around the world in 20 minutes and get this out to our community for those of you who haven't subscribed yet please do so so many of you have i mean it's been off the chart and we are going to try to do at least three a week he says fingers crossed two to three a week i think get yeah, my staff are nodding at me two to three a week is better um but we're going to do more and more and more of these because of the incredible response and we're very very grateful for this, uh, from our community. And for those of you who have subscribed, please, because we're doing this for an opportunity cost so that my partners don't lynch me, please do give us the $70 we're asking. That would be very, very helpful. And uh, enough of you have that things look great, but please keep doing that so we can keep giving our community the attention that it deserves. Thanks ever so not don't, 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 don't hear from you before. We'll try to go back on Friday to what was I thinking where we get to Eisenhower and the military industrial complex, a very pertinent topic that we cover in the book. And I'll talk through what I was thinking about that chapter from The Last Best Hope. Again, D-Day, January 10th, when I need you all to go online on Amazon and say, give it the five stars, say we can't wait for the book and we get Jeff Bezos working for us. Um, if something comes up in the meantime, we'll, of course, avert the schedule and cover anything that goes on because we do follow the ball where it takes us. We're a free safety in American football terms. Thanks to all of you. Have a great day and on to the next.